cutting edge revolutionary technology out there, uh, specifically narrow and wide web printers. A myth right now is that really high quality print is gonna be some kind of a litho. Yeah, I love this show, man. So we have a lot of new products. How kids have a career path, tremendous opportunities for them to grow through their career path. To me, it's a game changer. Welcome to Ink and Updates, your touch point for the flexographic industry. Stay informed about industry news and advertise your business or service to the community. Hello, and welcome back to Ink and Updates, a podcast brought to you by Interactive Inks and Coatings. I am Craig Tonella. With me, as always, is Tom Brennan. Today, we are going to discuss uh, everything UV. Uh, and to help us articulate our subject, we have on Jeff Makaitis from RON USA. Uh, so before we get started here, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and the company? Sure. Uh, RON USA is a raw material supplier in UV raw materials, monomers, oligomers, and photo initiators. Uh, these are the building block components for UV inks and coatings. Uh, we've been doing this for about 25 years, and I've been in this role in sales for 12 years, but my background is in chemistry. I was a formulator in a variety of different coatings, uh, chemistries, and uh, markets, including graphic arts. I actually didn't know that. You were in graphic arts? I was. I spent five years with a coatings company that uh, offered products for sheet-fed offset uh, presses. A little bit of flexo, a little bit of web, but mostly sheet-fed uh, offset. All right. So we discussed earlier in the year uh, basically issues with price increases in the industry, industry-wide, uh, with pigments and yes. all these other things. Um, when it pertains to UV manufacturing, can you uh, elaborate a little bit about uh, how the global market is affecting UV? Sure. I'd be happy to. The, the biggest challenges we're having right now are related to China, uh, where the Chinese government has put together a program of regulatory inspections that is it, it's regulatory on steroids. They they are inspecting chemical plants almost monthly. Uh, so in some cases, more than one time a month. And if you're shut down, it's not like in the United States where you get a punch list from the from OSHA or the EPA says you need to right. fix these things. Right, you get in a certain amount of time. Yeah, in, in China, you're shut down until you're fixed. And in, right. in fact, what we're facing in the last month or two is your plant could be absolutely fine, but your neighboring plant in this uh, chemical industrial zone has a problem, and so you're shut down as a result. And that doesn't happen every time, but it can happen, and so... All of a sudden, you're coming to customers and saying there's a supply problem and we're going to be out of product for the next Yeah, month. I mean, we talked about this right. on one of our earlier podcasts about how they just come mm -hmm. in, shut the whole place down. You don't get an opportunity to fix it. And then the owner-operators of those particular manufacturing facilities are like, well, it's going to cost us $2 million. We'll just go do something else. And then they, yeah, and absolutely. they leave. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And uh, we've definitely seen that. Uh, uh, more so on the feedstock side of things, where a, a chemical that goes into a photo initiator, uh, the, the manufacturer just decides I can make more money elsewhere or it's going to be too costly to correct these problems. Uh, and this is kind of the next step because prior to this, they were pushing all chemical manufacturers into what they call chemical industrial zones and uh, trying to get the pollution down, which is a good thing, you know, I'm a citizen of this planet, and that's a good thing, but uh, as, a, as a salesman in chemicals, uh, it's arbitrary, and it's uh, without any warning, or, and with very poor communication. So, more specifically, and 
we talked about, we don't want to go too specific into pricing and things like that, but specific chemicals. Do we have a specific chemicals in UV that might be having it more of an issue than others? The overall class is photo initiators, and without photo initiators, you're not curing your UV ink or coating. Um, there are ways around that from the equipment side of things, but um, products like TPO, TPOL, um, th those are the most badly affected right now. And those are critical, particularly as you start talking about LED, inks and coatings. Uh, those are two of the best products to get you your cure speed that uh, printers require uh, for uh, LED. Uh, beyond that, any photo initiator, it's all fine chemistry. It's all small, smaller batch, uh, more chemical intensive as opposed to labor intensive, and, and, and dirty chemistry uh that uh is being impacted so we've seen prices on certain products go up by between 25 and really 100 percent beyond that because of some of these supply crises we've had to rely on air freight and that can add quite a few dollars per pound right on top of a rising cost yeah. so, and then you're limited on so your in certain supply, products right? so if you're having these the manufacturers are like well we only made 100 pounds, for example, and you got 25 mm -hmm. customers asking for that same 100 pounds. Well, you're definitely not taking on any right. new customers. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. 100 pounds is a small number, but I'm just saying it's... Sales control allocation has been uh, the watchword on, on a number of products, uh, BDK, CPK, uh, DMHA. You know, these are all building block products for, particularly on the coating side. Those three products are, every coating out there is going to, more than likely have one, if not more, of those products in it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, on the one hand, like I said, it's a good thing that they're cleaning up their act because this is dirty sure. chemistry and sure. people in China are dying because sure. of pollution. On the other hand, uh, it's bad because it's causing a lot of pain for everybody in a value chain, raw material suppliers, ink makers like yourself, printers, and you know, onto the consumer. And we were talking just before the beginning of this how, you know, we're starting to see that in the form of inflation on products. Yeah, absolutely. When you start seeing these type of things, obviously we try to supply the best customer service we can. And we're all dealing with these market type of global industry changes that can cause issues. So you have new customers. We're trying to gain new customers. And a lot of trying to gain new customers is gaining new customers in UV coatings. That's generally the right. first thing absolutely. for us in, in our like, market. What kind of coating do you have? Right, what kind of coatings do you have? Can you supply me these UV coatings? And like we were talking about before, when there's limitations on the amount of raw materials that we can get at any one given time, you know, it starts causing ripples throughout the system. But So um, putting some of these uh, global um, setbacks and difficulties aside, what are some of the advantages that you see um, of using a UV ink as, a, as opposed to a water-based or a solvent-type ink? For our customers, well, you know. my my company only sells UV raw materials, so I'm I have a vested interest in this uh, industry okay. growing. And <laughs> and my company, you know, we look at the uh, the market growth for for UV, and when when the general economy is poor, we're expecting UV to grow by three to five percent. When we're living in a robust economy, we expect UV to grow on a year over year basis by seven eight percent. And, uh, and there are reasons for that. It's, it's very fast, uh, efficient. It uh, cuts down on 
energy costs for the printer, and it provides some very good performance and benefits to the end user. Uh, so, you know, I, I think UV's future is potentially limitless, but, but some of these supply chain roadblocks and, you know, we, I don't want to get into regulatory right now, but, you know, that's, that's the next thing, mm-hmm. you know, is, is an ongoing thing with uh, regulations in different regions that are scrutinizing these small molecular weight chemicals. So, you know, there are threats in the market, but there are threats sure. in every market. And, and, and I think uh, our company and our industry does a very good job of managing those threats. But there's no doubt that UV has has a very bright future because it is a better chemistry. In many respects, it's a greener chemistry because you don't aren't emitting solvents. VOC contents. Exactly. VOC, right. HAPS. Uh, you're not releasing anything to water, and so uh, it's it, it's not without its waste. But that that pollution is controlled, and you know that waste is controlled uh, by during you know, every step of the way, it's not not released to the environment. Right. Speaking about the different issues or different ways that UV is being used, I was at the dentist the other day. They're using UV fillers now. What? I didn't know that. They're putting they injected UV into my tooth, and then I had to like a light thing in my mouth. <laughs> you know, you're not making like, it. You're not making it I'm very like, easy for me to want to go back to the no. dentist right now. <laughs> well, no, but I was sitting here thinking like we manufacture UV. I know what UV is. I right. wear gloves, you know, and all these other things. And this guy's putting it in my mouth. I'm like. I don't know about this. <laughs> my my wife uh, is taking my daughter today to the uh, nail salon, and they're both getting UV nail gels put on their fingers, uh, and no chip. Uh, that lasts for, theoretically, 14 days, well, where typical, now, huh? typical nail polish is three to five days. And that, that's been ongoing, and it's actually been quite a growing market for us, uh, more so in Europe than in the United States, but... Uh, yeah, UV finds itself into a lot of different areas outside of printing and packaging. Uh, one of the areas that we're really focusing our growth on is 3D printing, uh, where a subset of 3D printing is photopolymers to build parts quickly for testing where they can't be built by tool and die or carving or lathes or things like that. It has to be built layer by layer uh, to give you to right. give you the part. And and it's it's an exciting part of our growth for the next 10 years I think is 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 they that do arena. Like floor coatings as well. I mean and like they put put the coating down and then actually come over it with a UV lamp to cure that. Yes, uh there there are a lot of people that are are working in that area what they call field applied okay. coatings and and it's exactly right. They uh will squeegee out the coating onto a surface and then take what looks like a floor cleaner or a, or a lawnmower almost, and and walk over it with this, and it cures in front of them as they're walking. Um, it is a slow process, and and there are there are some difficulties with that process, but that's an area where UV wow. is definitely expanding. See, I was under the, under the impression that UV never 100% cures out. Is that correct? Would that be a correct assumption? You're not going to cure every acrylate group in in any system you know because you're putting it under the light for a short amount of time you know relative to the end application so you're not going to cure every bit of acrylate now if you put something into an exterior application sunlight residual photo initiator will cause that to continue to react over time Um, but quite frankly you don't want it to fully react because if it does it could potentially be too hard too brittle 
uh, and can cause adhesion failures or or other problems down the so line. So it loses so, its flexibility, and you know we're exactly, talking about yeah. wrapping a label around a a glass uh, container, right? You don't want it. You don't want it. To, right. It's, you don't want it to be too brittle. It just it'll break in half, right? And and you can control that by your raw material selection. You know, us and our competitors offer an array of an array of products that are very very hard to very very soft and flexible. UV finds its way into pressure sensitive adhesives. It can't do that unless it's soft and sticky. So you know you can control a lot of that by what you select. But for most printing and packaging, you want it fast. And the way to get fast is to throw a lot of functionality right. in there and to throw hard products like the epoxy acrylate that's the basis of probably most of the UV coatings that are out there for general purpose uh, printing. Yeah. So just a little off topic, but uh, talking about the cure rate, we had a customer who uses open pan uh, printing process and uh, not even the UV lights, but the fluorescent lights or just the lights in the, in the facility started to cure the product sitting in the ink pan. Uh, does that free radical process continue? After you put that ink back into that container and close it up, does it stop after? Yeah, yeah so if I'm it sorry, starts, I, I, so I, if, I, if I can, I think what you're saying is, yeah, you know, a, a press operator pours the ink into a pan, and the just the ambient light from fluorescent lights or whatever light, sunlight even, yeah. starts to cure the ink while it's in the pan. When you take that ink and put it back into the jug, does that curing process then stop, or does it continue? Does that once you start the radicals moving around, does it stop it completely? Um, like every UV answer, the answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, in theory. Uh, yeah, it, it, that, okay, that is my great. answer to most UV questions because there are, there are ways to cause that. There are ways to prevent that. Uh, in theory, any free radical, which is what happens when the UV light or heat cracks open one of these photo initiators, any free radical can eventually cause a pail of ink to gel. Uh, not here, time. not our ink, though. We're not talking about <laughs> Of course not. Only the editor didn't do that. And that's where, here, it, but, where okay. the answer <laughs> is it depends because we offer a class of products called stabilizers. Uh, and these are stabilizers that consume free radicals. So their, their purpose is to give you shelf life. Their other purpose is to, you know, if you take a, a pigment and put it on a mill, you know, those collisions of the rollers and the pigment, those are going to cause free radicals because you're putting heat and energy into that system. So you're milling a pigment, you're going to put some stabilizer in there to consume the free radicals and make that process go without, you know, that, that gelation being a risk. But as you let down the ink and you package it, you're going to put some more stabilizer in there to give you long-term shelf life because Heat, light, um, even, you know, if you package it improperly, you put it in a metal can. You know, metals can form free radicals in the absence of uh, photo initiators. So um, putting in stabilizer can definitely buy you that shelf life. And I, I don't know what your shelf life policy is, but I know that companies want to have a 12 12 month or mm -hmm. longer shelf life on their uv inks and you can't do that without putting stabilizer in there yeah. and anybody that thinks they can ends up with a shelf full of hockey pucks because they yeah, all gel yeah out. absolutely yeah. we our standard policy is uh 12 months unopened is basically what we say and the reason we say unopened is because 
of the issues that we were basically saying before. If you start using that ink, there are a lot of things that could affect how the UV starts to cure and how the long-term stability of the product is going to be. So we like to say, yeah, if you don't open it, I mean, you're good for at least a year, but usually longer than that. One more thing I would add is beyond just the addition of stabilizer at, at your level is all of our raw materials, our monomers, our ligamers, they have inhibitors in them. There are various different products that will uh, work with the oxygen that's in the headspace of the container to consume those free radicals. So I deliver a, uh, a drum of TMPTA. It's got an inhibitor in there. That inhibitor is consumed over time, uh, but that's what gives that raw material the shelf life. And then the stabilizers we, we sell will give you longer-term shelf life. And some of those don't need the oxygen. Some of them work anaerobically. So as the oxygen is consumed in that headspace in, a, in an unopened container, you still have other chemistry in there that's going to prevent okay. gelation. I mean, because we have, okay. I mean, we have cu customers all over the United States. Nor, I mean, a guy up in northern Minnesota is, may not have the same issue as a guy down in Miami Beach just because of the heat, what you're talking about, and humidity right. and, and, and other factors. So the same lot number right. made on the same day could have different results based on where they're at in the country. So Absolutely. Sure. Okay, so uh, UV LED gaining popularity over standard UV, um, that would be my opinion. Uh, do you agree with that? If so, what are some of the, what are the, some of the benefits of LED over? It, it definitely is, uh, you know, I would say a tipping point was reached on LED maybe three or five years ago. Uh, before that, it was an experimental technology that, you know, the early adopters were definitely grabbing onto, but... It's been a big push, particularly in your area, in Flexo. Mm -hmm. The whole uh, uh, to, uh, Label Expo two years ago was, yeah, I mean, everybody thought it was like digital, digital, digital. It turns out it was LED, LED, LED. Right. Yeah, LED quickly took over our, our, our total sales of UV. Um, I mean, UV launched. I mean, if, if you look at the total time where we started doing UV about 10 years ago, it had six years, eight, seven years to gain, you know, business. And we did gain a lot of business, but when LED came around, all of a sudden when it was LED like, came hey, around, we're all buying of a sudden, three it's like it was very popular. LED. Right, and I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. no problem here. Right. I'll call right. my guy right. uh, Jeff. We're like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, you got any of this stuff? Yeah, right. right. Yeah, you know, I've got a love-hate relationship <laughs> with LED. Uh, I love it because it is definitely expanding. It's expanding the market, and it's. It is expanding the options that are available, uh, and there, there's definite value proposition there. Uh, the instant on-off, the very sure. long lifetime of the bulbs, you know, tenfold lifetime versus a mercury bulb. The fact that you're pulling mercury out completely—that's, you know, we, we we hit on regulatory. That's one of those maybe five, ten-year concerns: is what's the future of mercury? So if mercury is banned, LED is the best technology to replace that, and I think that's why people are adopting it quickly sure. now, just sure. on the on the chance that happens. Um, low energy, low footprint, instant on and off. The powers on on uh, these LED units has, gosh, probably doubled and then doubled again, and then maybe even yeah. a little bit more beyond that in the last five years. And first generation LED just wasn't getting the job done. You couldn't get the speeds and, um, you know, which leads to the disadvantages as I see it in LED, I sell chemicals. So, you know, I want to sell as many chemicals as I can as, you know, pounds, types, whatever. LED, 
it chops off a, a part of our product portfolio. Okay. There, there are certain photo initiators that are completely inactive in LED. You're talking 365 nanometers up to maybe as high as 405 nanometers. Most of the, in, in your industry, I would say 385 or 395 is probably yeah, the standard. Right the there norm. at 395. Yeah, our product, uh, our 395 sells uh, very well. 365, we've had some requests for. Is there an advantage over one nanometer range over the other? There is. So the the lower that range is, the more opportunities you have for photo initiator selection. And the reason that's important is 395 nanometers does not address surface cure. So you have to find your surface cure from somewhere else. Uh, as you can push that lower, most of your surface curing photo initiators are going to be active at 240 nanometers, maybe 260, 270 nanometers. So um, and, and the thing with UV, it's, it, you know, it's 395 nanometers. It's a bar. It's, it's a strong output at a single or, or a very limited range of wavelength. If you look at a photo initiator's uh, absorption spectrum, it's a, it's a, it's a large curve that, that goes over the entire range. It may have a peak at 240. Okay. It may have a peak at 380, but there's some activity in in the in that entire range. So if you're talking about 395, there may be a limited amount of activity in something like a uh, DMHA, but you're not going to put that into an LED system because, you know, as I like to put it, you're wasting space in the formulation. You only have 100% to deal with, and if you're committing 5% to something like a DMHA, you're getting very little benefit for taking so up the space in that formulation. So we've had customers call us and say. Hey, we're interested in moving to LED. We bought some LED. We don't have a LED lamp. We just have a regular UV lamp and it cured. Right? Okay. And so and I'm just a sales guy, right? So my question is, that's a little is that dangerous for them to do that at that you know, just having a regular UVA lamp and then curing an LED formulation with it? I don't know why it would be dangerous. Sorry not to jump in on no, this one, I, but you know, you're basically a standard UV lamp again, putting out a broad spectrum. So right. obviously, 395 right, is going to be right. in that spectrum, so it's going to cure out. Um, but I would see in consistency. If I was a quality control guy, am I consistently getting the same right. cure, the same right. amount of 395 range? I mean, that's kind of my concerns. Go ahead and you can cover and, that. One. You know, from my perspective, the concerns there is if you're using an LED formulation on a UV lamp uh, on a UV press. You're overpaying for what you're getting because the photo initiators that are active in the LED range are okay. the more expensive ones. You know, independent of any supply crises, you're talking about raw materials that are double or even sure. more uh, from your standard UV type photo initiators. So you're overpaying. Uh, I, I agree with you, Craig. If you're getting the finished print quality that you're looking for you're fine mm -hmm. uh, i don't think you're you're losing anything but I, I definitely think you're overpaying for it uh going the other way is 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 a massive problem you may not get any cure you, you certainly will be struggling with surface cure if you're not using an led formulation uh on an led have you said you just conventional take UV, uv formulation and moving it to an led press yeah yeah you're gonna yeah, have a, exactly you're gonna have a problem and i think part of why we're getting those questions is people are thinking about moving in that direction 
but they so they have a standard UV unit now. They want to see how LED inks quote unquote run and but they haven't bought their lamp yet or they have you know they're thinking about making that change and so now we're now we're fielding all these questions about hey we're going to put it on there see how it runs and then it cures so i think i think the problem there is they're not getting a a 100% accurate uh result for for what uh what an led formulation on an led curing unit would look like you you're maybe getting a uh, an approximation but uh it, it wouldn't wouldn't be exact and that would just be a concern for me from a feasibility standpoint absolutely that's that's a good way to start it's a it's an inexpensive sure. way to start because these uh, led units you know they've come down in price but they're not no, cheap. right there and, and retrofitting anything <laughs> is not cheap i mean it's an investment of time and money and and potentially productivity so um so you know i think that's a good first step i wouldn't make that my only decide decision point though okay so moving on uh i think what most customers are interested in hearing about and getting some clarification on uh would be uv low migration inks uh so when companies say that their inks are low migration that's always in quotes by the way always every article i read low migration <laughs> exactly well quote. doesn't that beg the question uh low migration as compared to what because it is my understanding that uh, uv migrates to some extent um all of it right to some extent um, so I guess what the question would be is, could you articulate what UV low migration is, what it isn't, so on and so forth? It's a situation where there's no standard and then there's a predominant standard. There's no standard for most people. They, you know, Particularly in this country, people are asking for a low migration ink. And I, I remember having this question uh, or, or dealing with this question with Brian, as defined by who? Mm-hmm. Who's defining low migration? Is it Nestle? You know, Nestle is obviously the biggest one out there. They're the ones that have had, the, have done the most work and also had the most public uh, embarrassment, right. if you will, yeah, sure. from, from a problem with migration. So they're the ones that. But they have an in-house program. They do. Yeah, they so do. Nestle's program is, hey, we need to do this to protect ourselves. Not necessarily we're working with some government agency right. to write write a new standard. As an example, if uh, Interactive Ink sells a, an ink or coating to a printer, and that printer sells the print or the package to Nestle, and then Nestle sells it to the consumer, consumer doesn't know who you are, Interactive Inks. They don't know right. who I am. They don't right. even know who the press room is. But they know Nestle because Nestle's the one that gives them chocolate and milk sure. and all Their of these all other things. Sure. And when this crisis started back in 2005, it was in Italy, which is a country that loves sensational news. And it was with baby milk, which is a crisis or a touchstone point. So, you know, you had sure. newspapers that literally had a picture of a baby and, you know, the word poison on it because there was a product that had migrated into the baby milk formula. Now, there are a lot of things that from a construction standpoint, you can do to prevent that. Uh, from a printing standpoint, but they went and they blamed chemical and ink makers. Sure. Which isn't necessarily the wrong, but it's not the only thing they should have done. But they instituted a standard immediately. Uh, they've since refined that. I think we're on version five or six now of the Nestle packaging guidance notice. Um, so they're they're the biggest ones out there, but they're not the only ones out there. So basically, so, what Nestle comes out and says, sorry, Tom, I didn't mean to cut you off, but basically they came out and they came up with a list of chemicals, right? An exclusion list of things that you mm-hmm. can't use for the inks. But they didn't go as far as to say what the printers can and can't use as far as functional barriers go or anything like that. 
In a first generation, no, they didn't. But I think they have since addressed okay. some of those things. I think they've also, you know, the very first list said, these products are acceptable. And, you know, it was nice. We had a couple of brand name products that were on that list. So, hey, mm-hmm. you know, in the nice. early days yeah, in right. Europe, it was, it was good business. Uh, sure. But they've since said, here's a classification of chemicals you can't use. A lot of them make sense. A lot of heavy metals. Um, poisons, arsenic, things like that. You know, those make sense. Then they have a list of photo initiators that are notorious migrators, if you will. You can't use those products. Okay, well, the problem becomes most of your standard photo initiators are now on that you cannot use list. Um, Beyond that, they've said, in the past, they said you can't use these monomers. Now they've got a list of products that they say you must minimize the use of those. What does minimize mean? Um, <laughs> right. And and what it really means, you know, Nestle's a Swiss company, and and Moran, by the way, is a Swiss company. Uh, so uh, and we've had direct conversations with their regulatory people so that we can guide our development along those lines. But uh, Switzerland, not being a part of the EU, has their own uh, chemical guidance. It's called a Swiss ordinance, and so Nestle has put that as part of the thing in their packaging guidance said your product has to be on the Swiss ordinance and it has to comply with it. Now, if you look at our product brochure, almost everything we sell is on the Swiss ordinance because it's not that hard to get on the Swiss ordinance. They've got two lists. One where you've scrutinized the chemicals, you've done tox testing. On those products, you can migrate. They either have a specific migration limit, which could be higher, or the standard for list a is up to 50 parts per billion. And then if you're on list B, which is where most chemicals reside, it's 10 parts per billion. Well, 10 parts per billion is not a lot of product migrating. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about parts per million, and even that was sometimes a hard standard to get right. to. So as, as you're shifting to parts per billion, it just, even if something is allowed to be used, if it migrates, past 10 parts per billion, which a lot of these things do, then you simply can't use them even if they're not excluded. Um, are there any, uh, back to the functional barriers, sure. are there any functional barriers that you could take any UV product and slap it on there, and it's going to prevent the migration one way or another, aside from a block of steel? Yeah, it's glass. Well, I, th- I think glass. glass. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this by saying <laughs> everything I'm about to say is my, Absolute what I've been told. Right. My opinion, right. it does not represent anything else. So, you know. Sure, don't take this as the Bible and don't <laughs> you know, say, hey, too. he told me so. Right. I want to get out of that ride. Right. Disclaimer after disclaimer here. But right. uh, right. but really, uh, you know, I, I have one friend who, who formulates for these products, and he's adamant that the only barriers, the true barriers, are metal or glass. Plastic, certainly paper. Uh, metalized plastic, anything along those lines is not a true barrier. Um, but really when it comes to migration, the bigger problem is, you know, flexo is a roll-to-roll process that maybe, you know, eventually is, you know, cut or, um, you know, slit and, and, and turned into the package. But in that roll-to-roll process, the biggest problem with migration is you've printed on the on the first service, right, you've then, rolled it up, and so that print is touching the back side. Yeah, that's like an off, offset. Offset, uh, off, offset, a reverse side migration. Uh, right. You know, these are all different terms for that for that uh, phenomenon. And 
and that's how they're testing migration. And in these migration tests have gotten much more uh, difficult. You know, they will test under temperature. They will test in uh, 180 proof or 90% alcohol to see what has extracted into there. There's some other chemicals. I believe it's called 10X. I, I don't even know what it is, but I know that it's it's a really good solvent for pulling anything out that uh, that could potentially migrate. And um, I think they've done a good job of, you know, if something's going to be a heated package, it's going to go to a microwave with a fatty food. They'll use a simulant that simulates that atmosphere. If it's going to go into a freezer like an ice cream package, they've got different test methods that they use that apply to how the end use is going to um, does the does the test reflect the end use? And I think that's a good thing. But these tests are the the testing themselves is is very expensive. I mean, you guys know that. Um, and you know, you as an ink company, us as a raw material company, I can make my recommendations, and you can put them into a formulation, and even you can do the testing, and and you can say this is what we recommend. But your customer is going to have to ultimately test production parts. The structure yeah, of exactly. what, the, the structure Absolutely. of what they're and, putting the foodie in, right? Uh, you know, matters, mm-hmm. and 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 that's where it becomes very onerous, and and it's something that you kind of have to maintain. What if your UV lights, uh, you know, UV lights have a, a lifetime and they start to fade from the outside in? So what happens on the edges of your sheet uh, as uh, as you're curing it? If you well, if you do that migration that, testing, is it is that going to pass the same way the middle is? So, and I think what we're seeing too in some packaging uh, development is that uh, they're using the UV ink on the outside, but the actual part. So that's like the outside packaging, and then the food itself is kept in a separate plastic, like a, like a cereal box, where like you cereal, know right, the, the exactly. UV could be on the box itself, but then you've got the the plastic right. bag. Right, so it doesn't come in any way can come in contact. And that's, you know, that gets into an area that I, I, you know, maybe I have my head in the sand a little bit on there. I I don't get too involved to that level because I'm not personally impacted by it, but it's absolutely a consideration and uh, and it needs to be looked at. And there are no easy answers here. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about Nestle, but Nestle's, Nestle's the dominant standard. It's not the only standard. Part of the thing in this country is, you know, the FDA standard is not very strong, but nobody follows it because, you know, from a chemical standpoint, it it is vague. And from a chemical standpoint, products that are recommended, you know, years ago, Radtech put together this food contact notification. And some of the products that are in that are products you absolutely would not grab for a low migration product. Hmm. So, you know. They've never even defined what a functional barrier is. No. No, the, in the United States, the United States doesn't uh, is not a very strong marketplace for food packaging. So the the people that are doing food packaging in the United States, particularly for European companies, they're following a European standard. In fact, a lot of times they're bringing in European inks uh, to do that work. Well, but, even in in general, not sorry, not to cut no, you off, but when, you, when we get into the GHS program. You know, uh, all of our labels and packaging and classification of chemicals comes from European uh, type of standards. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're leading, they're leading the way as far as all regulations go in general. In the chemical yes industry. and no. Uh, you know, the GHS system, the Global Harmonized System it is, of Labeling, it's not is global not, and it's not harmonized. Absolutely, I, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've said that. 
there, there are products, there are materials in some of our products where in the United States, if you have 0.1% in your formula, whether it's my product or your product, mm-hmm. it's got to have that label on it. And in, the, in Europe, that same chemical, same GHS system, 3%. So how is that global? It, you know, right. That's a huge difference. That's yeah. uh, 300 times difference or 30 times difference. Yeah. I don't even understand all the little pictures either. I'm sorry. The pictograms? Yeah, or the pictograms. I don't know. I, I think they understand. wanted us to do Some of them are a little scary looking. <laughs> Absolutely. Want... Yeah, the health hazard exploding <laughs> man? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I, I think right now the, the the touchstone one is the skull and crossbones. The skull, right. so, you know, yeah. Which which is, always cracks me up because, hey, that's pirate flag. Yeah, that's kids right. love pirates. And, <laughs> and yet that's the scary one. <laughs> Um, you know, in certain organizations, they see the exploding chest, uh, Starman, yeah, and uh, they, uh, and I believe that stands for health hazard. Yeah, you like um, specific target organ, organ toxic, there, toxicity. Sorry, and there are like certain that. organizations, certain ink companies, press room companies that don't want to see that mm-hmm. on on a package, and and I understand that, but with the way the regulatory scene is going. You're you're only going to see that on more and more products as time goes on, yeah. and so uh, I think there needs to be better education, better understanding at every step of the way, better handling, whether right. that's air quality or air handling, uh, personal protective equipment, things like that. Um, but I think anything with that label on it can be easily managed, whether you want to or not. It can be easily managed. Sure. The skull and crossbones is where it gets much more difficult because there could be reporting. Uh, or you know, just a lot more sure. uh, distinct. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And just, handling equipment. Yeah. Right. And just to clarify for our, our listeners, uh, we have no skull and crossbones in this facility. Nice. So, <laughs> and 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 for ours, uh, two years ago we didn't. Right. Now we have a couple of products that we do. Where those exist, you know, we're they're right on our safety data sheet. And quite frankly, we don't sell much of those because our customers don't want them. And mm-hmm. right. I, I don't blame you. I mean, who right. wants them? Who wants that in your building? Who wants to handle that? Exactly. Right. Even if you can handle it, uh, why would you want that hassle? Um, right. Right. But unfortunately, you know, in certain industries, some of the stuff that sticks best, you know, is the stuff that well, yeah, and we, it, yeah. it's whether it's plastic or your skin, you know, that <laughs> that idea of sticking best is, is right. So the good news is I have a product that will solve your issue. Right. The bad news is you'll have no hair in five years. Right. <laughs> and you'll be partially blind. Right. But you have a great looking package. But with with a change in Tosco, with the implementation of Reach over the next uh, month and a half, you know, every every week I get a notification on one of our products where a label has changed and uh, uh, reprotoxicity, carcinogenicity, you know, things that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years all of a sudden carry a different label. And so staying in front of that is mm-hmm. is an incredible hassle. It's an incredible cost. Yes, yeah. I'm well aware. Every, uh, I mean, it's like price increases uh, one week this year and then regulation changes the next week, juggling the SDS sheets. But uh and then you have to go all the way back. Oh, absolutely. Wait for all of your vendors to get back to you. And they're not, in a, you know, sure. they're like, well, we're waiting for our guys. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so not to get too far off topic here. I, sorry, I brought up the GHS and we no, went down, right. a, down a rabbit hole. But, um, you know, when it comes to handling the raw materials. So this is actually from a manufacturing standpoint. What kind of things do manufacturers have to do? And, of course, we're one uh, to manufacture low migration. Are there specific standards, not just the materials that we can't use? But also the facility, the air. I mean, can we manufacture 
you know, UV in this bucket, and then, uh, you know, switch it over. The next one, we manufacture UV low migration, quote-unquote, in the next bucket, right? Does it... New facilities, things like that. It depends. No, yeah. uh, really, the, the answer there, I would say, is no. I, there are possibly ways to manufacture or to uh, work around that, but most companies that are, are big in low migration inks and coatings have a facility that is dedicated just to low migration. Um, you know, skipping ahead, we're going to talk a little bit about benzophenone, but benzophenone is a good example. It's everywhere. If you took a blood test right now, there was probably some benzophenone in your system because it's everywhere. And if you're using it in a coating or an ink, it's a solid that has dust, and that dust is going to land everywhere. And so anything you do that's not in a dedicated environment, if you're using benzophenone across the room, it's incredibly likely that some of that benzophenone is going to be in a low-migration ink, and it's no longer a low-migration ink. Right, I understand. So, basically, so you know, gonna... uh, that's that's the concern. You know, some of the big companies have made completely dedicated plants just for low-migration, or, you know, they've got an outbuilding, and that outbuilding is their, is their low-migration area. But again, it, it really depends on how that low-migration is defined and, and, and what you're really looking for. And that's where you've just, whether you're the ink maker, the, the press room operator, you've got to ask the questions of your customer. What do you really want? Mm-hmm. And and then can we do it uh, legally, ethically, or you know functionally? Right. So since you brought it up, Enzo Fanone, uh, seems to be being targeted by REACH, Prop 65, things like that. Um, what is it and why is it being targeted? Uh, benzophenone is a very uh, common product in UV. It's been around for probably Ever. 70, 80 Ever. years, maybe, yeah. you know, probably a couple hundred years. I don't even know. But uh, it is uh, a derivative that's made by benzene and benzyl chloride, you know, some nasty stuff. But that's not where the problem really lies. The problem is that it migrates everywhere. So, from a low migration standpoint, that's a problem. The other problem is they've done tests and found that it can, I, I believe it was a French organization that found it could cause cancer. The way Proposition 65 works, they don't have scientists, they have a bureaucracy. And oh, so sure. for certain classifications, in, in this case, I believe it was IARC, which is a organization in France, they decided that it was a potential carcinogen. And because of the way Prop 65 rules are, it automatically gets swept onto Prop 65 if that's the case. And I mean, in fairness, they just put coffee on that list. In I was going to say Prop 65 <laughs> is the biggest I mean, joke in California. Coffee. You can't walk into a bar or a steakhouse without right. a Prop 65 warning because <laughs> right. ethanol and the compounds that form on charred beef are <laughs> on Prop 65. I mean, quite frankly, if you're going to a steakhouse and you have some bourbon, I mean, you know, right. right. Uh, you know, well, the, the bourbon the should thing. be on the Prop 65, right? That can potentially <laughs> cause issues, I imagine. Right. But you just told me two things. You told me, one, that benzophenone is everywhere, and then you told me it causes cancer. So <laughs> Sorry to scare you. <laughs> that's fun. I didn't say it causes cancer. Oh, that's France right. said it causes cancer. That's right. That's right. Sorry, not to put words in your mouth. So, you know, it's it's a product we sell. It's a product we sell quite a bit of. And since it went on Prop 65 a couple of years ago, yeah, the volume has gone down. But there are ways to easily formulate around it. You know, why it's around is it's one of the most economical photo most initiators expensive. out there. And in fact, so economical that people 
historically have loaded it up into formulations. So you ever go to your mailbox and you get a nice shiny gloss magazine, put it up to your nose? I, I have. That's benzophenone. Yes. yes. So, you so I'm in big trouble. Yeah, now. I, I, I would go to the doctor tomorrow, Tom. <laughs> all right, great. Um, and so, you know. I always thought about just mailing all those things back to them. But anyway, sorry. What's interesting is, okay, so you can't use this stuff in uh, California. What if you ship one of these magazines into California? You don't see a Prop 65 warning there, which means no. it's a stupid law. I Correct. think everybody agrees it's a stupid law, but now there's reporting. It is what it is. But the good thing is there are ways to formulate around it. There are photo initiators that uh, right. that do the same thing. Unfortunately, because benzophenone is the most economical, anything you do to replace it is going to cost more money. And sure. I, uh, you don't want to hear it, and, and your customers don't want to hear it, but that's but it, the way but it that is. is. Yeah, right. yeah. That is what it is. All right. So um, the last one is uh, EB electron beam technology. We have some interest in that. What is it? What, what makes it different? What makes it interesting? And, I, and I'm going to apologize to you because I'm not uh, I'm not very strong on E-beam. I know what it is. It's uh, it uses a electric charge instead of a UV light to create the energy that reacts reacts the acrylates. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice thing about E-beam and the, the reason why you know in theory it should be growing is you don't need photo initiator in an E-beam formulation. So your biggest culprits from a supply chain standpoint, your biggest culprits from a regulatory migration standpoint, they're not in the formulation. So that sounds great, doesn't it? But However, <laughs> e-beam equipment has come down in, in cost. Uh, you know, A typical e-beam uh, piece of equipment historically would cost well over a million dollars. Costs have come down. I don't know to what extent, but you know, just below a million dollars is still... A lot of money. I could do the math on that. And (laughs) so (laughs) historically, the guys that do E-beam are the guys that are doing 24-7 long runs uh, because that's how you maximize that investment in that piece of equipment. Um, And it is very well suited for food packaging. Um, And so, you know, food packagers are doing long runs because they're selling these products everywhere globally uh and that's where it makes sense but if you're doing a lot of changeovers if you're having a lot of downtime uh it doesn't make sense i don't know how small the equipment can be made but you know the other problem is potentially a health risk because e-beam is it's not x-rays but it's like that in that you know it can cause your cell structure to mutate if you're exposed to it now the way they get around that is with shielding, and and that's what helps drive that cost up because it's kind of a self-contained unit that <laughs> is going to protect the user. But um, so you got there's that one guy in the midnight shift, right, with the third eye growing out of his head. Well, I just picture you know you get you, you got to get your X-ray, and the doctor walks behind a nice big sheet of glass, you know, right. yeah. with all the lead. Uh, the x-ray know. comes out completely white because you're glowing right. uh, before they even shine it on you. Yeah. I remember I went in to get a Z scan once, or what a CT scan, and I asked the guy, so is this going to give me cancer? He's like, well, not today. I'm like, right. oh, great. <laughs> but I, I will say from a testing standpoint, what, I, what I've seen a lot of companies do is, you know, a lab unit on eBeam is several tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Very expensive. Much more expensive than a UV one. So a lot of people that are formulating for eBeam don't even have a lab eBeam unit. They will formulate put the photo initiator in to do the testing 
and then when they deliver the product, they will not, you know, they, they'll remove the right. photo initiator. And that's an okay way to do things. It's not, it's not foolproof, but that's a good way from a development standpoint because every step along the way, it's just very expensive. Right. Um, yeah, trying to break into new markets, get into eBeam. Um, all right, so unless you have any specific topics that you want to cover, that covers, uh, you know, kind of what I wanted to talk about. But um... Well, I mean, I think I'm curious as where do you see, uh, you know, the popularity of UV you know, over the next five years or so when it comes to, you know, packaging. And... Well, let's just expand that out. Let's just talk about the, the market in general. UV, water, digital, obviously, is digital going to take over the earth? Uh, but of course, UV is UV digital, digital. going to take over the earth. <laughs> I, I, um, yes. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's always a matter of yes. It's just a matter of uh, when. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll address it two different ways. Uh, chemistry first. Um, things that have happened in the last couple of years on the regulatory front, on the supply chain front, have exposed some potential problems in UV. Um, but I really don't see solvent. I really don't see water taking over the spot that, that UV sits in. Uh, it, it is a better technology from a performance standpoint, uh, from a regular or from a green standpoint, because you're, you're, you're putting the energy in there and you're not releasing anything into the environment. Uh, so I think it, from that, from a chemistry standpoint, so, so we're talking UV, LED, all that's UV, LED, UV and same. LED versus water versus solvent. Okay. I think, right. You know, I, I'm surprised that, that solvent is still a a real factor, quite frankly. Well, they got really good at scrubbing them, those yeah. buildings and outfitting those buildings. But, uh, but I, I don't think solvent takes over UV. And, you know, having come from a water-based background, I don't like water-based that much because you're just trading it for trading in one set of chemical issues for a different set. And when it comes to water, sometimes your durability suffers. Certainly, your potential release to aquatic systems is a bigger problem as well. Um, so that, from a chemistry standpoint, I think UV is going to continue to grow at that five to five to eight percent rate year over year. From a market standpoint, when it comes to print packaging, the growing areas are food packaging and just packaging in general. You know, everybody knows what's happening in the print industry. Publication is down and will continue to be down. Screen printing is down and will continue to be down. Do those go away? No, they don't go away. Right. There's always going to be a market for those products, but the companies that are focused only in those areas are struggling because the the market's not growing there. It's like envelope business. Yeah. I mean, business forms. Right. right. Um, so packaging is growing. Digital is absolutely growing. Digital is trying to supplant every other platform out there. They... Uh, I've done a really good job over the last five to ten years of taking over the screen business, whether you're talking about banners, billboards, signs, mm -hmm. sure. car wraps. Um, sure, you can go right down to the FedEx, uh, and they have those big wide yeah. format uh, printers, and you can get a sign that will fill this room up. Yep. And, yeah, I mean, that will take an hour. Right. And um, Done by uh, high school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the other area that it's growing, well, certainly in mailing it's growing, because if I can print something, personalize it, you know, uh, here, here's here's Tom Brennan's promotional flyer, and here are the coupons and deals that I'm going to give yeah, you. Yeah, and they're on, not really deals, but and know, on I the very next, saying. the very next print in the job, you know, here's Craig Tenorella's specific 
you know, so for rewards programs, things like that, uh, right. loyalty clubs, that's fantastic yeah, because you can target everything based off of databases and right. well, in short runs. I mean, yeah, you know, short I, runs, I, mean, I was data. at a customer and they're showing off their brand new whatever, and you know, they just same ice cream liner but three different flavors. The guy never shut the machine off. He just went from from raspberry to blueberry to you know, and never shut it down and cha- just all he did was mm-hmm. change, uh, change the SKU numbers. Yep, that was uh, it. The, yeah, and that's 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 the other thing I was going to say is food packaging. You've got a number of digital companies that are building very large pieces of equipment to attack food packaging, and that's going to be a, potentially a, a real game changer. You know, it, digital in, in every form that it's ever been rolled out has always changed the game, whether you're talking about downloading a video versus buying a CD or DVD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and now it's just finding a different way where, you know, as you switch from analog to digital, your your ability to be mass mass customization, you know, your ability to do those kinds of things really grows because there is no changeover. Um, so I think those are the two biggest or fastest growing areas in print packaging. Um, and then beyond that, the, the, you're going to see a continual decline in publication, sheet fed, and, uh, you know. Uh, Newsprint letters, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, screen, that's what screen I was going to say. Screen. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. My generation, we don't pick up newspapers, so that's going away. Uh, on the way in this morning, I was listening to how, uh, I think it's the Sun-Times is moving to an online it's not online only, but a subscription service for their online because mm-hmm. everybody gets their content for free, and that that makes it hard to pay your journalists. Right. So, um, you know, that they're definitely seeing that shift. I haven't bought a newspaper in ten years. Yeah, I actually pay for a newspaper. It comes to my door every morning. I, I just it goes right into the recycling bin, unfortunately. And I ended up buying it because I mean, they, what what do you? I know I feel bad about I mean, it. Well, because so they send a, you have a subscription. They send the, that shows up to your door every morning. <laughs> So you can throw it away. Well, I feel bad for doing I it. I mean, quite frankly, this is why I got rid of my house phone. I understand. Because they were, I was paying to be harassed by <laughs> telemarketers. Well, I feel, I, feel, I feel bad, obviously, just picking up a newspaper and throwing it in the recycling. But and I don't always. Sometimes I read it, really. But, you know, they send the kids in to, to get me to sign the subscription. And I'm not going to say no to the, to the kids who are walking door to door. So you end up signing your name to it. And honestly, I have no idea how to cancel it. And I don't feel like going through the whole process of trying to do it. So... All right, Tom, well, uh, do you have anything else to add? Well, actually, I do. I have one last thing. And uh, my one last thing for this week is really a recap of some of the uh, packaging that we talked about on our earlier podcast. And what I what I did was, because our, our customers really want to know, I have the Blue Bunny box pouch that you love the graphics of, but didn't like the window. Okay, yeah, so I, this is funny because so, I actually started talking. You actually bought this? <laughs> so... So this won the highest achievement award for a flexible packaging association, and it's you know it's got the gold award for excellence with a reclosable zipper. And okay, so it opens in the back. Okay, so that part yeah, I always like. So, yeah, so so here's my argument. I don't know if you actually listen to this podcast. Here's my argument. I I see a, minute, a marketer. You should open it first so we could have a, a tasty cake. All right. Well, okay, <laughs> fine. We can open it. But here here's my argument because <laughs> you see marketing guys and the coding guys. Okay, see I see two different coatings here. We have a nice oh. gloss with a soft touch. A marketing person did a great job, right? That looks delicious to me. Here's my argument. That doesn't. 
That's an inspection so window. So why would I want, yeah. like, if I'm marketing my product, why would I want a big window to a frozen block? You had no idea you were coming in. <laughs> no, it, but, but it's so. like it's like walking in. Uh, my wife and I went out to dinner at a, at a really nice restaurant the other night, and they brought the tray of desserts at the end of dis, uh, dinner, and I looked at it, and I'm like, that looks lovely. It's all wax, though. You know, right. that's not ice cream that's been there for the last four hours. Right. And, uh and you're exactly right. It does uh, does not look appetizing when you look through oh, that. Oh, see? All right, now oh. we're two to one. Man, All right, so here's the cool thing about it. The zipper in the back, okay, I think that's a big reason why it won the um, the, the, yeah, the packaging award. Sure. Because basically, it's you're not adulterating the, the, uh, the branding in the front. So you can open it in the back, and it's resealable. And that's all fine and good. I think that's really interesting. But again... Give me the whole. Give the marketer. They're doing their job here. Give them the whole front end. Yeah. Why are you opening it up to a frozen product that nothing frozen looks really good? Like I said you, so you can inspect it. So you. Do can they sell see. steak? Do they sell steak in a freezer bag? No, like they, like like advertisement wise. Well, fresh steak, by the way, is out on the on the counter. Doesn't have a package. There you mm. go. I'm sure you've been looking forward to eating that. Let the record show that we're eating a blue bunny <laughs> chocolate chip cookie ice cream. Right. And it's delish. So my like, argument is... So look, I mean, that's great. It's not. It's delicious. I'll give you that. So All that's right. my one last thing. All right. Well, I, I'll, I'll just note that any call to the Blue Bunny Corporation went unanswered uh, for them to come on here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the chocolate chip cookie bunny snack is delicious. So go get one today. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, this has been a, a very informative time. Every time I sit down with Jeff, I learn something. I hope you guys all learn something, too. Right. Again, this is Ink and Updates brought to you by Interactive Inks and Coatings. We're talking with Jeff Makaitis from Ron USA. Uh, thank you, and make it a great day. All right, great. Thank you.